0: W Media Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Miserve.
1: Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein.
0: And I'm Jean Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. The headlines have been understandably dominated with the horrors of mass shootings here in the U.S. and the savage war in Ukraine. But lurking in the background is another policy challenge, Afghanistan. The RAND Corporation recently released a report suggesting that the most productive approach for the U.S. to take towards the Taliban regime is not isolation or overthrow, but engagement.
2: Our argument is that engagement is the only strategy that has a a plausible chance to improve, uh, to achieve U.S. policy interests. It's not to say it's, it's Ideal by any stretch, uh, and it's—it's it's, our preference for it is in comparison to the other choices. Um, I think the the primary risk of engagement is in uh, legitimizing the Taliban, is connecting the United States to um, a,
0: a, a horrific regime. That was Andrew Raden of Rand. We'll be talking to him a bit later in the episode.
3: The FBI
2: Agents Association sent a blunt warning today, calling domestic terrorism a
3: threat to the American people and our democracy. It urged Congress to make domestic terrorism a federal crime. Last month, FBI Director Chris Wray
2: told Congress domestic terrorism was on the rise.
1: Just in the first three quarters of this year, uh, we've had more domestic terrorism arrests than the prior year.
2: One former federal official told CBS News law enforcement agencies need a rebalancing similar to what occurred after 9-11 when the counter-terror
3: focus became al-Qaeda and ISIS.
1: Right-wing extremists. That was CBS correspondent Jeff Begay's in 2019 following an anti-immigrant massacre at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas that left 23 dead and another 23 wounded, mostly Hispanics. The death toll from hate-driven gunmen has only mounted since then, unfortunately. Following a murderous rampage by an outspoken white supremacist in Buffalo last month, I checked in with our friend Tom O'Connor. He's a former head of the FBI Agents Association, who spent most of his 22 years at the Bureau focusing on domestic extremist violence. The day before we talked, Republicans in the U.S. Senate had blocked consideration of the domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, aimed principally at the upsurge in right wing militia, neo Nazi, and racist violence. The bill had drawn criticism from both the right and the left, however. Well, Tom, it's another week, another mass shooting. The shooter at the elementary school in Texas seems to have been just a very, very disturbed young man. But in Buffalo, the shooter was an avowed white nationalist, who had not been private about his feelings. This week we also saw the defeat of the domestic terrorism prevention bill, which you strongly advocated. That was defeated, that was passed overwhelmingly on a party-line vote in the House, but defeated or blocked by consideration by by the Republicans in the Senate had that bill been in place for let's say the past year or more would that have prevented a shooting like we saw in buffalo by a white supremacist
3: well the the bill that just went forward and was uh voted down um was not actually the same bill that uh in same structure that that uh i have been advocating for for the past 10 years um the the one that uh, that I am behind was introduced uh, in 2019, and th- did not move to the floor for vote. And and that uh, bill it just takes the definition of domestic terrorism, which is in general uh, use force of force or violence to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or to influence the policy of a government. And if you use that force or violence for that purpose, that's domestic terrorism under the definition. The bill that uh, that we had backed uh, was one that just gave a penalty to that definition, which right now there is not a penalty attached to it. The bill that most recently went forward and, and was voted down uh, was structured differently. It, was, uh, it had quite a bit to do with, um, the agency's uh, overview of, of uh, white supremacist activity. And I, and I believe that one of the major reasons that it did get voted down was it was specific to white nationalism, white supremacist uh, violence. And right. the issue that that uh, many people have, and, and when I'm discussing this with, with uh, people uh, in general, it is that, the fear is that uh, the the party that is in power will use it against uh, their uh, their foes, whoever that. Right. If the if the the there's a right leaning party in, they'll use it against Antifa. If there is a left leaning party in there, they'll use it against you know uh, you know right wing white nationalists potentially. And so that that seems easy to say. Okay. Um, but, really, what has to happen is that the law itself has to say it's the violence. doesn't matter the ideology. So, I think what happened here was this was specifically geared towards white supremacist white nationalists, which I would think people would say, that's fine. The fear is that it was it didn't include other forms of domestic extremism where violence is used. and And that, I think, was the problem with this. Uh, bill that just got voted down.
1: It would have established special units at the Department of Homeland Security, the Justice Department, the FBI, to monitor this extremist behavior. Putting aside the political considerations, do we need special offices to keep track of this surge of white nationalist uh, violence? I mean, it seems to me that the FBI didn't need any special tools to take down the KKK, for example.
3: Exactly, and so in in the uh, the backing of the proposed legislation that that I was involved in and still speak in favor of, that bill itself doesn't add any to the FBI any new abilities to monitor the public. It doesn't give the FBI any new you know surveillance techniques that type of stuff it doesn't call the KKK or Antifa a terrorist organization and the main reason for that is that the first amendment is called the first amendment i've said this many times it's called the first amendment not because it's kind of important because it is extremely important it's the first amendment that's what makes us different than many, many countries around the world where we don't have, they don't have the ability to speak out uh, against their government. So protecting the First Amendment and people's ability to to disagree and to publicly protest is extremely important. And we don't want to ever step on that. But wh- where we don't want to have, where we don't want to have the issue is that um, that, that, that is ever a slippery slope, right? So I I don't know that uh, creating more bureaucracy uh, is the way to do this because it is difficult to monitor. So we talk about the Buffalo shooting and this person was uh, online with what we need to do is have people willing to report that. Uh, And the extremely disturbing uh, information is coming out that six people, including potentially one retired federal agent, uh, we're engaged in communications with this person. Um, that is, uh, you know, disgusting, and and those people should be uh, able to be held accountable under the domestic terrorism statutes, of which there isn't one now.
1: So let me interrupt you here for a second, Tom. So you're saying that. Stopping someone like this avowed white supremacist in Buffalo really is incumbent on people who happen to come across him in social media uh, rooms where he's espousing his views. And he did that quite voluminously. Doesn't the f- federal government or local police have a role to play here? On well, mon- most, most
3: definitely. Most definitely. But the, the, the law enforcement federal government can't be everywhere. And they all—I mean, just imagine the number of people who are are writing things on the internet, and the the uh, just think about the reaction if the FBI was monitoring everybody's uh, keystrokes to see that they didn't say uh, the word bomb, right? So uh, you know, if hey, Jeff Stein, he's the bomb, bang! All of a sudden, you're on a uh, an FBI watch list. That can't be done, right? So so law enforcement really has to work, just like any other type of law enforcement, has to work with the community. If there's drugs in a neighborhood, it's the neighborhood that comes forward and tells law enforcement, hey, this is going on. Um, Yes, law enforcement in that neighborhood is going to make notice of things that are you know, criminal activity, suspicious behavior. But the neighborhood has to be involved with law enforcement. And that neighborhood online is the same thing. And, And I've worked many, many cases where the information came from somebody who was online, saw something that disturbed them, and uh, they contacted law enforcement, the Joint Terrorism Task Force. And then we look at that and say, okay, that doesn't cross the line, that's First Amendment uh, protected activity, this person isn't espousing violence, uh, or the person is, and then you start looking into the person. But it it is really a community-wide, internet-wide, Um, type of thing that really is going to make a difference Uh, and and if you see this this latest case six people heard some some crazy stuff going online and not one of them came forward and and that is that's unfortunate
1: yeah so uh it's it's even more complicated in jurisdictions where the police don't have a lot of respect in certain communities and uh, we've seen this particularly in, in Baltimore, and we're getting evidence of it in Minnesota and in Buffalo. So people aren't really uh, eager to come forward and contact law enforcement. And, but- and
3: that that's one of the most important things that law enforcement uh, does, tries to do, and and should continue and strive to do, is work with the community. When I started in local law enforcement in 1983, the, the key was community policing, right? It was, and th- that name has changed over the years to, uh, you know, community oriented policing, all sorts of different, it's really the same thing. It's police officers getting out, meeting the public, getting out of their cruisers, becoming part of the community. And that's when people feel comfortable to tell you things that are, are, are uh, you know, really destroying their community. And and it's the same thing online. I think uh, law enforcement, and you'll see there's a huge push with the FBI and the cyber crimes, uh, kind of following the same uh, "see something, say something" uh, mantra, which has been through counterterrorism for decades, and it's it really does work. You, you know, I, I do a lot of teaching of law enforcement in in uh, domestic extremism and this type of thing, and uh, one of the things I tell officers is, "Hey, you you need to have warrants to get into somebody's house. You need to have subpoenas to get uh, banking information. You need to have all sorts of authorities to do these things. You don't need any authority from anyone else to get out of your cruiser and talk to somebody.
1: But we seem to have a problem of sympathy for white supremacists in law enforcement. We've seen this come up again and again in various studies, internal reports, the FBI, journalists, investigative journalists, stories, and so on. So,
3: But I'll, I'll, I'll push back on that, Jeff. And okay. that there are hundreds of thousands of police officers in the United States. The, the, the people who were involved with the Oath Keepers uh, at the U.S. Capitol or people who have been involved with the Klan. I worked domestic violent extremists, right wing, Ku Klux Klan, National Alliance, uh, World Church of the Creator for t- over two decades. Um, we were always cognizant of the potential of law enforcement being uh, recruited into that uh, culture. Um, but I'll tell you, my history was that that was far and few between. It is, it is seriously something that those groups uh, and that type of individual uh, people that are online uh, trying to recruit people, they're looking to recruit law enforcement, military, always have been, always will be, for that skill set which they bring to the table. The, the, the numbers are disturbing, uh, even though they still are small when it comes to the overall number of officers uh, and agents across the the United States. That doesn't mean that it's not important. Uh, It it means that we need to be better at at, uh, identifying these people and getting rid of them from law enforcement. Because realistically, to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan is not illegal. Uh, It's it's first amendment protected activity. You can do things that you and I, and the vast majority of people, completely disagree with. Now, it may very well be uh, against regulations, policies, procedures within a department to get rid of people. I I have done uh, a few cases, probably a handful of cases, where we had federal agents or law enforcement that were involved in domestic extremist activity. uh, And there was no criminal activity. But we were able to use their FS 86 in the federal realm, which is your security clearance. And the second line or third line of the security clearance clearly states, are you a member of a group that espouses the overthrow of the United States government? And the way I went at it with the U.S. attorney's offices and the leadership from the agencies that uh, we found people involved in this stuff was that to say that you're, and let's use the National Alliance, which is a neo-Nazi organization. It's it's pretty much defunct now, but it, it, in, in the early 90s, uh, 80s, 90s into 2000s, it was thousands of members, literally card carrying members. And if you were a member of law enforcement and you were a member of that organization, then you were a member of an organization which espoused the overthrow of the United States because they wanted it to be a white, Part of the United States, a minority part of the. And that's not how the United States is built. So by virtue of that, they espouse the overthrow of the United States government in its form. So we were able to get those people have their security clearances pulled and they lost their jobs and they were no longer in law enforcement. So there's a way to do this. It just, it's there's you have to think outside the box. And it really comes down to 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 recruitment and continuing to identify.
1: Let, let me ask you a, a more thorny problem, uh, which seems to be arising rapidly on the horizon, has a lot of people worried. The election of officials who still cling to the big lie about the 2020 elections, I'm thinking right offhand about the Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, who's espoused the big lie. What could stop him from seizing the ballot boxes? Um, uh, if he doesn't like uh, a Democratic victory uh, in 2020, if he's elected, uh, or any other official, does federal law enforcement have a role to play uh, against uh, elected officials who want to bring down the United States or the form of government we have?
3: Well, the FBI is responsible for uh, federal corruption uh, and in uh, enforcing the laws related to elections. Um, so, so, yes, the FBI would be involved in that. And I, I think...
1: So, let I, me I, ask you to, to specify that a little bit. So, uh, Biden's administration's Justice Department could order FBI agents to intercede in this dispute in a place like Pennsylvania, where the governor has seized the ballot boxes, stopped the machinery of, of the elections?
3: Well, I think that if we look back to 2020, there there was, as reporting is saying, there was discussion uh, by the administration in power to do some of the things you're saying, and they they were in power, and it didn't happen, okay? Because there are rules, there are regulations, there are two sides to a political spectrum, and uh, one can't just overshoot the other. Uh, although it, it you know it is a scary thought. Um, there, there are there are checks to be uh, you know checked as you're going through this. But, but
1: they were trying to stop uh, a legitimate invest uh, a legitimate election to seize the ballots to overturn the will of the people, if you will. What we got on the horizon here is elected officials who would not accept a defeat at the polls for their candidate and to seize the election machinery to stop the, the will of the people from being carried out. So can and, the feds and I think that, that get was involved much, there?
3: But that was exactly what happened in 2020, or the discussion was from the administration was exactly that, uh, seizing ballot boxes, using the military to seize ballot, all of this reporting is coming in, right? Uh, but it didn't happen. So I think the most dangerous part of the 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 big steal of the you know the big lie or the 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 election was stolen is that as we move towards 2022 and 2024 that that rhetoric which has been shown through multiple investigations to not be true and i'm not taking a political side here it's Mm -hmm. it's just the investigation shows that it wasn't true so the i think the most dangerous uh thing happening here is not people going out and seizing ballot boxes and this type of stuff because I think there's checks and balances there that will hopefully prevent anything like that. The most dangerous thing I see is the rhetoric which continues to be pushed forward and people that we have online as we're seeing in recent times that are believing this full out and they they are going to be a small number of those people who believe that the only way to stop this is by using force or violence to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, or to overthrow or you know influence the policy of that government, right? So that is that is the danger. It is that there are persons, and you know,
1: we. Do have you mean? Them... Let me ask you to clarify here, Tom. Do you mean? Let's go back to this case in Pennsylvania, and I don't mean to dwell on this forever. No, this, no that's fine. But. Uh, this theoretical but let's say this uh, the Republican governor of Pennsylvania uh, doesn't accept the election results and seizes the ballot boxes are you saying that the real worry is not that per se but that that armed individuals would come out of the woodwork to support that governor
3: I I think uh, so I I don't know if if that would happen or could happen Uh, hopefully there are there are things in place uh, in the process that would stop that from happening, but my my fear is that we've called them lone offenders, lone actors, lone wolf. That those people who are online, their their the personal grievances. The as we go down, tick off the personal grievances in 2022, they mirror uh, almost uh, you know e- exactly they do mirror uh, the the same type of grievances that Timothy McVeigh had. So we had. We had an economy that was was tough. We had, uh, you know, gas prices that are are hitting people in their pocket. Food costs are going up. You have a perception in a large population of the United States that the, the government has overreached its authorities in mandating uh, uh, shots and the vaccines, mandating the masks, shutting down, uh, you know, communities, uh, masking in schools—all of these things add to it. The new uh, abortion issues that are going to be coming up with, uh, you know, the near term—all of these. Second Amendment is is now huge uh, in discussion related to the shootings that have been taking place recently. Right, all of these issues rise up to the point where people uh, are, are fully aggrieved by what they perceive as these, their personal grievances. And the, the potential, adding into it the stop the steal in the 2022 elections, and the things you're talking about uh, in your, your uh, discussion of Pennsylvania, things like this rise and bring forward the potential for violence from those, what we called lone actors, but I'm I'm actually looking at this now. If you look at the shooter in Buffalo, he may have been a lone actor. He did that by himself, but as we find out, there was a lot of influence. Whether and it goes all the way back to Robert Matthews in the Order from the 1980s, the uh, the Turner Diary, the shooting mm-hmm. at Christ Church, the shooting at the South Carolina, Black Charlottesville, Church, all, all all of these things build into this person's personal grievances and and the outcome of that is walking into a store in buffalo and killing as many people as he as he could Uh, and so that is my fear is that those uh individuals feel that they are at the point where the only thing they can do is use violence to influence the policy of that government and and i think that is that is we're, we've already seen it in the in the past two weeks. That yeah, this and, is, is real,
1: and no one re- would be, unfortunately, surprised to see yet another mass shooting this week, next week, the week after. I mean, why
3: would uh, we be surprised? I mean, if no. you, if, if you're, uh, you know, we've had two horrendous shootings in this country in the last week. How do you? How would you, anybody actually really be surprised if that happens tomorrow?
1: And the bottom line is that. The feds we can't count on the feds covering all these incipient uh it's not it's individuals not possible. it's just it's not, not possible, possible. and it's, and obviously social media companies have uh either been unwilling or incapable of policing this extremist uh, behavior online so as you say at the the bottom line is that if you see something say something
3: it really is the most important thing if if you're a person that is online in in chat rooms and i don't call them chat rooms anymore but in these uh on these platforms and you see something and you see the number of people that do uh call into the tip lines or call the their local uh authorities and you know the fbi the joint terrorism task force local authorities every single day are out running down leads from this type of information some of them pan out, some of them don't. And you see cases that are, are going to court where someone was, you know, uh, building a, a, a mass of weapons and they had this plan in place. It, it happens regularly across the country where, where that it, uh, is that they get in front of that violence. Uh, sadly, there is no possible way to get in front of all of the violence. And especially if people don't, uh, you know, tell that, hey, this is, because, you know, people in the United States don't want to, think that their neighbor could be that extremist, right? Uh, we, and we, were, we became very comfortable with saying that Al-Qaeda was going to attack us, and that was a terrorism attack. Mm-hmm. We still haven't gotten to the point where we, we can say domestic extremism is domestic terrorism, which is why we go back to we need to have a penalty attached to the definition of domestic terrorism, and it needs to be enforced and used even handedly for violence, not the political side of the coin, the violence.
1: Well, that issue is not going to go away. There's a lot of uh, well-meaning people on various sides of this debate and whether we should name, uh, you know, label groups as domestic uh, terrorists. Um, It's not going to go away. Unfortunately, Tom, I I have the feeling we'll be back talking about this again in the near future, especially as we get closer to the elections. Anyway, Tom O'Connor, thanks so much for coming on the Spy Talk podcast yet again to talk about this very disturbing issue.
3: It's always a pleasure, Jeff. And uh, hopefully we have a a quiet period of time here for a a good period of time. But unfortunately, I I don't see that as realistic.
1: Tom O'Connor is Principal Consultant with FedSquared Consulting based in Alexandria, Virginia. Gene.
0: That was a fascinating interview. One one thing that interested me, he predicted the possibility of individuals taking violent action if they're unhappy with upcoming election results. It seems to me, given the networking and sharing of rage and passion and ideology on social media, there's a real possibility of group violent action. And I find that even more terrifying.
1: Yeah, and of course, these extremists have made inroads into the U.S. military ranks. We found a number of veterans and some active-duty military at the January 6th riots. A fellow who covers the military diligently every day told me that he used to worry about uh, another Timothy McVeigh emerging from the military to uh, blow up another big federal building. But now he worried about whole units defecting over to the anti-government side. I, I, I think we're just in unknown territory here, and we just don't know what's going to happen. we got politicians who are encouraging the big lie who may be elected to senior government posts like the governor of Pennsylvania. So we just don't know where this is going. I like to think that America always swerves back to the middle. Uh, that's our history. We go through extreme periods, and then we swing back to the middle, and hopefully that will happen this time.
0: Whoever thought we would be here. We're going to be back talking about Afghanistan in just a minute. Before we take a quick break, a reminder that you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack, where there is a lot of great original content. You can follow us on Twitter at Spytalker and at Gene Meserve. We'll be back in just a second. Back in power in Afghanistan, the Taliban is returning to form, girls' access to education is being curtailed, Burkas are back. In addition, hunger is haunting the country, creating a massive humanitarian crisis. After the loss of American lives in Afghanistan, the chaotic U.S. withdrawal, the abandonment of many who fought with us, and the return of the Taliban, many Americans may want to avert their eyes and attention. But a new report from the RAND Corporation says we still have interest there, and it lays out three policy options, engagement, isolation, or opposition. I asked Andrew Radin, one of the authors of the report, to spell out America's continuing interests in Afghanistan.
2: We identified two key remaining U.S. interests in Afghanistan. The first one is the interest that I think has been on U.S. policymakers' list from 2001, and that is to prevent Afghanistan from serving as a, as a safe haven for terrorism. Uh, the second interest is a moral and reputational interest in the, in the fate of the Afghan people. And here, uh, I think U.S.' willingness to invest resources in that has, has waned uh, or varied over the years, but I still think that's important.
0: So looking at the counterterrorism picture as it stands right now, what do we know?
2: To be honest, our assessments are, uh, we should have less and less confidence in them. But at a minimum, we can say that there are two key threats, potential threat groups in Afghanistan. One is ISIS-K, an ISIS affiliate. That's probably the the most significant one. Estimates vary from about 2,000 to 4,000, depending on, on who you talk to. They are quite active in Afghanistan today conducting attacks, especially against minorities, the Hazara minority. Um, There's also Al-Qaeda still in Afghanistan. Estimates have ranged in in the hundreds, and and generally official guesses is that they're not able to conduct attacks in in the near future.
0: In your report, you laid out three policy approaches, isolation, opposition, and engagement. Our current policy is what, isolation, I think it's
2: uh, best characterized as, as isolation with, with some engagement. To give uh, the US government credit, there have been uh, real and significant efforts to talk with the Taliban on specific issues. And you see, for example, Special Representative Tom West um, uh, discussing that. But the reality is that the primary policy has been to, to try and isolate the Taliban regime for understandable reasons, the the regime uh, is the continuation of the Taliban from the 1990s. Um, and, and this takes place through the U.S. not having any kind of diplomatic uh, presence in Afghanistan, no official visits to the country, continued sanctions, although with, with some important exceptions, um, and, a, and a general stance of, of trying to weaken the regime.
0: When it comes to counterterrorism, the U.S. has said, we will monitor terrorist terrorist activities and we will strike if necessary. Is that an adequate policy, do you think? I think
2: it depends on, these things are all a cost-risk calculation. President Biden, when he explained his decision to depart Afghanistan, in April and then again in August, when the Taliban effectively took over, highlighted that the US campaign had had significantly weakened terrorist groups in Afghanistan. And I think, you know, I, I agree a lot with that assessment. Is there still terrorists in Afghanistan? Yes. Do they pose an imminent threat to the United States and its allies? I don't think so, in part because of the US agreement with the Taliban could that change certainly and that's why i think there's a need to to remain cognizant of the situation in the country but i, I don't think i would i would say that the risk of terrorism would justify uh, a continued significant us military uh, activity in afghanistan
0: refresh my memory what is that us agreement with the taliban
2: in the, in the end of february february 29th of 2020 Special Representative Zalmay Khalilzad signed an agreement with the Taliban, basically establishing a timeline for the U.S. withdrawal and making some other commitments on the U.S. side, uh, whereas the Taliban committed to, to basically prevent Afghanistan from, from serving as a safe haven for terrorism.
0: So you lay out, as I mentioned, two other options for, for policy. One is opposition. Define that.
2: In our framework, opposition is a strategy designed to remove the Taliban from power, to actively use U.S. policy to prevent them from um, being the government anymore through supporting groups in opposition or through trying to establish some sort of platform where the U.S. could more directly be involved in the country. I, I don't think that's feasible right now for a few reasons. One is that there's not really a viable opposition to support. A second is that the countries in the region have not um, expressed support for uh, any kind of US basing in the region to accomplish even lesser goals, not to, to, not to even say that goal. And a third consideration that we, we raise in the paper is, let's suppose that the United States were successful in bringing down the Taliban. That would create uh, quite a great deal of chaos in the country that could, foster an environment favorable for terrorist groups. And it would also leave the U.S. in a position very similar to 2002, with um, a a great deal of responsibility to address the situation in Afghanistan.
0: And the third option was engagement. Again, what does it look like?
2: Engagement is a strategy of trying to use inducements to get the Taliban to, to move in a positive direction. Um, to use tools such as diplomacy being uh, more forthcoming with humanitarian assistance and development aid and and working with the regional actors uh, along those lines. To a degree, you could imagine using the tools of engagement, even if one did not expect the Taliban to positively respond. For example, the more that US um, officials are in communication with the Taliban or international UN officials are on the ground in communication with the Taliban, the better they are to alleviate the humanitarian crisis and prevent the outflow of refugees from the country. So some of the tools of engagement are, are useful, even if the Taliban are not making progress on rights for women and girls or making progress in, From a U.S. perspective in
0: reducing the terrorist threat. Could engaging with them have unintended negative consequences? Certainly. I mean, I think
2: all of these strategies have a degree of risk. I would say our argument is that engagement is the only strategy that has a plausible chance to improve, uh, to achieve U.S. policy interests. It's not to say it's, it's, Ideal by any stretch, uh, and it's it's our preference for it is in comparison to the other choices. I think the the primary risk of engagement is in uh, legitimizing the Taliban, is connecting the United States to a horrific regime. Um, you know, the Taliban of today are have shown themselves in many ways to be uh, similar to the to the to the policies they've enacted in the past, and you see this with their continuing refusal to permit girls to go to secondary school and, and to, to open universities to, to women, um, and most recently with, uh, with uh, limitations on um, um, women's clothing, insisting that they are fully covered except for the eyes in, in public.
0: Do you think that politically it would be possible for the U.S. to engage? I'm talking about domestic politics here.
2: Yeah, I think that is an important constraint and I think a driving one. When we talk about our paper on these options, one way that we talk about it is as if one were to start from scratch to view Afghanistan today without the challenges and the the baggage that we've brought along the last twenty years. What would a what would an ideal policy be? But but of course that's sort of a hypothetical. I mean, I think we have to take account of the past. I I, I do think that when uh, if policymakers, legislators are confronted with the, with the calculation of where we are today, that, that there's good reason to think of not blindly trusting the Taliban, but, but thinking of how to deal with them in a way that achieves U.S. interests. But, but that has enormous costs for politicians, members of the executive branch, given the Taliban's history. So of course, that's, that's a very difficult thing.
0: And frankly, isn't attention elsewhere? Afghanistan is getting very little public attention, at least.
2: Yeah, I think that may actually cut both ways. I think to a degree, attention other where, elsewhere permits a consideration of where we are in Afghanistan and what's ahead because it moves some of the, the headlines off the front page. Um, So I I do actually think that, to a degree, the myriad other challenges that we face are themselves, of course, uh, important and, and difficult, but perhaps they do create an opportunity for a sort of new start or a look ahead on Afghanistan.
0: And meanwhile, should the U.S. be considering Russia, China, Iran, and the stances they're taking towards the Taliban?
2: Yeah, I mean, one thing we mentioned in the paper is that many people frame Afghanistan through the lens of uh, great power competition. Now that the U.S. has left Afghanistan, it leaves an opening for China, for Russia, for Iran to expand their influence in the country. I wouldn't support that framing. I think while there is, you know, while this idea of competition and how we, we the United States thinks of itself relative to these other powers is, is an important interest. I, I'm not sure that Afghanistan is of major interest to them or that the US loses in this competition having left Afghanistan. Russia left Afghanistan after losing many of its soldiers. Is Russia eager to, to jump back into Afghanistan? Not at all. Um, they have concerns. They, they want to limit the risk of terrorists coming from Afghanistan to Russia and they'll take action to do that. China has been, uh, has certain concerns in Afghanistan um, preventing, you know, Uyghur terrorism to the extent that's a, that's a real thing. But they've been quite limited in their assistance. Even if they were to go in and to help address Afghanistan's problems, I'm not sure that that would be a, a, a great hurt to the image of the United States. I think that would, that could alleviate some challenge. I'm also not sure that
0: they would be successful even if they tried. So give me a a realistic view of what you think is going to happen to U.S. policy over, let's say, the next five years.
2: I think one thing that is going to be debated, and I hope will, um, that there'll be progress, is, is what is the extent of humanitarian assistance and development assistance to Afghanistan? How can the international community, both from a practical constraint, from sanctions, from political constraints, figure out the best way to maintain a degree of services in the country and, and help make the lives of the people in the country better. I think we'll see some limited progress there. A, a second piece is going to be ongoing U.S. diplomatic yeah. discussions with the Taliban. Uh, From realistically, I think it's, as for the reasons you say, political reasons, it's very hard to see an official U.S. diplomatic presence in Afghanistan, although I think there's good reason why that could actually advance U.S. policy interests of both counterterrorism and and, uh, humanitarian assistance. So we'll continue to see a a pretty limited engagement there. The the regional picture is one that I think could, could change quite significantly. There's been turmoil in Pakistan. And I think that's an important, actually, uh, perhaps that's the greatest point of, of leverage or change is um, how Pakistan sees its relationship with the Taliban, how Pakistan can influence um, their behavior.
0: I think the American public to some degree would love to wash its hands of Afghanistan. Um, it was a difficult place. There are painful memories. But can the US ever really do that?
2: I was talking with a, a colleague of mine who had a story from, uh, from something that I guess a member of the Taliban told him, which was, you know, yes, you can leave, but, but how will you talk to your dead? A recognition that the U.S. Has, has lost many people in Afghanistan, that we've paid a, a terrible price an investment of people's lives. And I think that's going to be a lingering factor forever in, in U.S. policy. While I certainly understand the desire of U.S. policymakers to to focus on other things, to not want to hear about Afghanistan, to not want to hear about Pakistan, these sort of uh, impossible challenges that there was no good solution for, the reality is that these countries continue to exist and continue to have an impact on U.S. interests, and so Part of the reason we we wrote this report was to, to to raise the issue to make sure that it's in the minds of policymakers, and the public, and analysts to think about what to do about it,
0: because the the ongoing risk is even greater chaos and potentially even more terrorist activity. Correct?
2: Yeah, I think that's one component is thinking about what is this terrorist risk. Another component is, you know, the the humanitarian situation and associated refugee risks. Both are important and both, I think, are not going to improve without some sort of change in, in U.S. policy, although, of course, there's, there's other ingredients to it. So, you know, why do policymakers need to care? I, one argument certainly is, is, is the risk that Afghanistan, again, is, is, a, is a safe haven for terrorism. You know, we, we saw that in 2001 and it could absolutely happen again. I think, fortunately, that, that risk is not very high in the near term. I think there's quite a high risk of increasing terrorist activities in the region. That, that's also concerning. But I, I think that in the immediate term, the, the, what's going to draw our attention to Afghanistan is the, is the humanitarian situation and the, and the plight of the people there.
0: For which we have some responsibility.
2: Yeah. I mean, and, and I think it is in our, in our interest to address that. Especially for the many Afghans who worked with the United States, who still find themselves in Afghanistan, even from a, from a, a a realist perspective, I suppose, from the perspective of what is what is driving the U.S. to, to be concern, I think the refugees from Afghanistan can go elsewhere, and and there's, the world's going to face um, a growing refugee crisis from other conflicts. So. It's not only a question of terrorism. There's other factors and challenges that can come from the region.
0: As mentioned earlier, the U.S. has said it will strike in Afghanistan if it needs to. Talk about that a little bit more.
2: While the United States was present in Afghanistan, while the United States had forces in the country, there were extensive resources to monitor terrorist activity to take action against terrorists in the Lead up to the departure, senior U.S. generals, General McKenzie, the Sencom commander, testified extensively how the loss of military presence, the removal of the uh, embassy would decrease the ability to monitor the situation there and address terrorism. And, and based on analysis and, and public statements that that trend has continued. There's, I think, a great deal of skepticism that just with drones operating from the Gulf states or from other places, that the US can collect the necessary intelligence to uh, keep track of terrorist groups or to to be as aware of, of what's going on. Some have suggested, especially Seth Jones in a CFR report, basically trying to do more on the ground, collect more intelligence, have better drones to gather more about terrorist groups. I I think that's gonna be a struggle. The Taliban, their driving purpose was to limit US influence in the country and that will remain their primary concern. I think a, a likely response on terrorism is the Taliban saying, we made a deal, with the United States, we, we've got this. So the one of the reasons I think engagement is a uh, desirable strategy is the limits of a unilateral US over the horizon capability. While the Taliban are not to be blindly trusted, that there's a need to continue to, to pay attention to events in the region. There's, there's also some benefits to, to working with them to, to
0: limit the reach of
2: terrorist groups in the country.
0: That was Andrew Rayden, a political scientist who authored a new report from the RAND Corporation, Engage, Isolate, or Oppose American Policy Towards the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. His co-authors are James Dobbins and Laurel Miller. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Rayden. Jeff?
1: Well, Andrew Raiden certainly knows what he's talking about. He's been studying Afghanistan for a long time. But one thing is certainly true, that nobody wants to talk about Afghanistan right now, much less even think about it. Uh, it's, a, it's like a, a wound that we just want to walk away from. But when the elections come, you can be sure we're going to be reminded of Afghanistan. You're going to see the Republicans running clips, and, and maybe they should. I don't know. They should be, they're going to be running clips of the chaos at the airport, people falling off airplanes, desperate to escape. And that's going to be square, blamed squarely on Joe Biden. So we may be rid of Afghanistan, but Afghanistan is not rid of us.
0: Yeah. And not to mention that bombing that took place at the airport during the withdrawal. And of course, the many people who worked with the United States during the conflict there who are still in Afghanistan. We have not gotten them all out, even now.
1: Yeah, and that includes uh, local police. Uh, A new report came in just this morning uh, from the Special Inspector General on Afghanistan and said that uh, under pressures of the insurrection and the insurgency, that uh, we militarized the Afghan local police, and they became under the sway of Afghan warlords, corrupt warlords. So the police were militarized. They weren't paying attention to ordinary crime. And we, mostly CIA, and the military stuck with these police commanders who were brutal and corrupt and, in the end, inefficient. So the whole edifice collapsed really quickly. And that finger of fate is going to be pointed directly at Joe Biden come the election season.
0: It's a tragic situation. That concludes uh, this episode of Spy Talk. Thanks again for joining us. Please, we'd love to hear from you. Send us any ideas you have for topics you'd like to see us explore. I'm at Jean Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker on Twitter. And a reminder to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Have a great week. I'm Jean Meserve.
1: I'm Jeff Stein. We're going to try to be a little bit more upbeat next week.
0: We're never up, Pete.
1: We got something on the Watergate anniversary. Like everybody else does, we got a fascinating interview coming up with uh, Jeff Morley, the author of a new book about the CIA and Watergate. So we'll be talking to you about that next week. Until then, I'm Jeff Stein, and great to have you here again this week on Spy Talk.
0: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get
1: your podcasts.